In June of 2018, two years after the Pulse nightclub attacks, Orlando police officers responded to a domestic violence call. As officers attempted to contact the suspect, he fired a shot through his door, striking Officer Kevin Valencia with wounds that he would eventually succumb to. The suspect then barricaded in his apartment with his four children as hostages. This event, which would last more than 24 hours, proved extremely difficult and required the resources of both the Orlando Police Department SWAT team and their partners from the Orange County Sheriff's SWAT team before finally reaching a tragic resolution. My guests today are Captain Jonathan Bigelow from the Orlando Police Department and Sergeant Chris Eklund with the Orange County, Florida Sheriff's Office to discuss the incident and share their lessons learned. This episode will be dedicated to the memory of Officer Kevin Valencia. My name is John Becker. For the past four decades, I've dedicated my life to protecting tactical operators. During this time, I've worked with many of the world's top law enforcement and military units. As a result, I've had the privilege of working with the amazing leaders who take teams into the world's most dangerous situations. The goal of this podcast is to share their stories in hopes of making us all better leaders, better thinkers, and better people. Welcome to The Debrief. Guys, thanks so much for being here. Um, I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Absolutely. No, thank you for having us, really. Why don't we start with like your personal backgrounds? Chris, why don't you tell me about your history? How'd you get here? Um, well, actually, I'm kind of a thousand miles away from where I was growing up. I grew up in Massachusetts. Um, graduated from college and started realizing after a little short break that it was time to find something real to do with my life. Um, being from Massachusetts, I didn't really have any relatives who were in the law enforcement world. Uh, my parents had moved to Florida a couple of years um, prior, right when I got out of college. So I decided to come down to Florida. I started the arduous search of trying to find a place to work. Um, I'd actually applied at the Orlando Police Department. I was summarily de- denied that position. <laughs> um, I still and, love you. Yes, thank you. And... Um, being from Massachusetts, I really didn't have a grasp on what being uh, employed by a sheriff's office was because in Massachusetts, it's a you know process server or work in the jail type of thing. So I never really even looked at the sheriff's office. And um, I was actually approached by my neighbor who was good friends with the sheriff of Orange County at the time, asked if I had applied there. I hadn't, so I did. Uh, a short period after that, going through the process and things like that, my neighbor brought over his uh, wireless phone and said, here, talk to your boss. Next thing I know, I was getting offered a job at Orange County. That was 1999. Give me context on Orange County. Like, how, how many deputies? How big is the department? Right about now, we're sitting about 1,650, 1,700 uh, sworn. Um, probably another 850, 900 civilians. Um, we cover about a population of about 1.4 million these days. It's a 1,003 square mile type of an area. Uh, basically surrounds the Disney area, the Disney corridor type areas like that on the north end. Um, part of it spans to the south in a different county. So we have all that to deal with all kinds of tourism and things like that. Wide variety of people coming and going. Give me context like from, from a team standpoint. Tell me a little bit about the team. So the team is, um, we're a decentralized team. So uh, to say that is to say that we have a part-time contingent. It's made up of 15 operators. 
um, and and some senior leadership. So two team leaders, two squads of operators, then a lieutenant and a captain, and then we have about another twenty three. Um, well, actually, more like twenty six um, part time operators who you know do another job besides just being on SWAT. And then we have six tactical medics um, that are assigned to us that are deputies. They're not fire or anything. They're prior paramedics and things like that um, that make up the team. So full time, I mean, full team strength is 40-ish. Yes. Got it. John, talk to me about you. Where'd you, where'd you grow up? What, give me the, the brief history. Yeah, I was uh, uh, born in Michigan, just outside of the Detroit, the suburbs of Detroit, and uh, moved down to South Florida in uh, the early 90s. And uh, my parents got a transfer there for work. And I attended uh, Florida State University. Went there, uh, realized that I was, I guess when I when I started high school down in South Florida and became a part of the Explorers program down there, that I always knew that I wanted to be a cop. So <clears throat> I went to high, I went to college uh, at FSU for criminology and uh, came back, started working in Parkland, Florida. As we all know, that that, that was put on the map, you know, uh, several years ago with that whole incident. That was my alma mater. Worked there for a couple of years and then buddy of mine from college said, Hey, are you doing anything? I'm like, well, I'm working here. He's like, why don't you come up here and work? I said, okay. So I uh, applied for the Orlando police department and I was hired. I started there and just after nine 11 in December of one. So I've been there ever since. And, you know, I'm very fortunate to uh, have the career that I've had so far. Talk to me about the team. Yeah. The team is, man, uh, I almost get, teared up when I talk about the team because such a good group of individuals. Uh, we're a part-time team, uh, 45 to anywhere to 45 to 48 uh, operators. Uh, we got some techs in there, uh, two ER docs that are phenomenal from our level one trauma center uh, embedded in our team. Got a lot of resources. Um, I served on the team for 13 years. Uh, on the incident that I think we're talking about today is I rounded out my career as a deputy team commander, but just uh, overall, you know, pretty busy team, uh, Metro, or I guess you can say the city uh, jurisdiction of Orlando is, uh, you know, uh, our department size is uh, at that, at the time of 2018 was somewhere in the low 800s and now 2023, we're almost cresting in the mid 900. So we've grown some, some size, and we're covering uh, some, uh, you know, 300,000 people over 114 square miles, and we got a lot of we got a lot of territory that we're covering. But I'd like to tell people the easiest thing to say when you talk about Orlando, because everybody knows uh, Orlando for Disney and Universal and stuff like that. But our peanut butter is in Orange County's chocolate. You know, that type. <laughs> I don't know whether that was a good description or a little too graphic. I, I, I wouldn't have said it. <laughs> well, then take it out. I don't, you know. Oh no, it's it's gonna stay. Yeah. So okay, so let's let's start with the incident. Um, give me date. Give me context. How does this thing kick off? Yeah. So this is a this is a crappy scenario. Um, I I'd, I'd like to say I'd like to I guess start by saying on uh, on June 11, 2018 that. You know, cops are cops, and they do everything with the best of intentions to uh, to get the job done and to resolve problems and save people's lives. But on this case, in this scenario, we ended up losing somebody, and one of our uh, few that 
have been lost to uh to crime and to evil i guess what you can say but um in in the early in the late i guess late night of that evening on june 11 uh, as we responded to a domestic call the officers uh, met with the victim a female victim saying that her uh, her husband had beat her and uh you know was threatening her and uh, she uh, vacated the apartment where they were staying at the time and it's just right outside it's in our southwest area of town and uh, it's near near Universal Studios just to give some operational direction of where we were in the city um, so we were sitting there uh, they, they responded to this call and they realized that they had felony charges and one big thing that she had said was you know, I'm in fear for my four children. And the officers that responded were like, well, what's, what, why, you know, okay, so he deprived you of your phone, which gave us our felony, and you he beat you, which is a domestic violence thing in the state of Florida and probably anywhere in the United States. Okay, what else? You know, oh, he might have guns. He's on probation for 45 years for arson. And okay, okay. You know, he had all these little red flags. Well, where does he, where would he keep a gun? Oh, he keeps it, he would keep it in a car or in a closet or these are the things. And she gave this, uh, some of the circumstances, but she kept hitting home about how she was in fear for her, for her children. So the officers, you know, they sought some assistance and I guess it was a slower night in Orlando that night. So they all rallied up and tried to go make good, make contact with the uh, individual, uh, the suspect, if you will, we're not going to name them, but um, they were provided some keys. They did some homework, realized that there was no gun in the car. Apartment was dark. Now to lay out the apartment, that kind of sucks because it was a, uh, I I, I say a standard, uh, apartment complex building where you have two different rows of stairwells on a large structure that was three levels high and the room their apartment was on the middle level on the second story and it was deeper off at of the parking lot so they're at the door and they tried to make contact with the individual to uh, take him into custody and uh, that's when things went south got it so Initial call is just a DV call that kind of gradually getting more and more red flags as you go on. Um, apartment building. This is the second floor of a three-story apartment building, two stairs coming up. Kind of describe for me, try to paint a picture of what the the layout of the apartment building is. It's a long, straight hallway that all the apartments come off of, or is it more like townhouses? Yeah, it was a uh, rectangular building as a whole. So on either side, if you just say north and south, you have uh, stairwells that will traverse up all the way on either side, east and west of the actual building that would bring occupants to those respective build uh, their apartments. So then on each floor, you have four doors on each hallway. So Bottom floor, you have two on the left, two on the right. Go down a little bit, two on the left, two on the right. And those are the respective uh, room, you know, the doorways to these apartments. And they're probably about anywhere from two to three bedroom apartments. Okay, makes sense. Go ahead. So um, it was just uh, the distance from the, uh, I guess, the challenge is from the parking lot where 
you know, easiest line of travel would be from point A to point B would be park up, walk up, traverse those stairs, get to the second floor, pass a doorway to one occupant, one somebody's apartment, and then go to the target apartment, which was in this case on the right. On the back side of the apartment was sort of like a steep incline of grass and, you know, uh, almost like a gully. What would you call that? I don't even know. It's like a retention area that separates two different apartment complexes. So there's no easy way to just say, let's park up here and go here. There's no easy way. Whether you go up one stairwell or next, you're getting to the same Yeah, you're ending up in the funnel no matter what you do, and there's no easy external access. Yeah, the only difference is if I go up from the parking lot side, I'm not I'm not exposing myself to the windows on the side of the the target location. So the target location only looked out in one direction, which in this case was, we'll call it the east because it was sort of southeast, but it's the east. Got it. Okay, so patrol officers get there, they make contact. What happens? Yeah, so uh, make contact with the victim, get the story, get the keys. They have keys in hand to go go inside and uh, try to make contact with the suspect and... Uh, they brought troops with them, uh, knock on the door several times to no avail. Nothing's happening. It's dark, but the car is there. So they don't think that suspect left with the four kids, but they say, Hey, you know, let's do our due diligence. So they try to insert the key in the, into the key lock and turn the key. And there's some resistance there. And in this case, I think officer Valencia, even we hear him on body camera saying, to one of our his partners, and yeah, yeah, I think somebody's holding the the lock. Uh, all right, so they try again, and they uh, there was a, a command decision made to you know, boot the boot the door, you know, kick the door in. So he uh, reached around or turned around, I should say, not reached around, but turned around to uh, almost like mule kick the door to reverse, and looking over his right shoulder, and when he mule kicks the door, uh, that's when. He was trying to kick it one time, and then the shot rang through the door and caught Kevin in the, over in his face. And bullet wrapped around his head and dropped him. So, Suspect fired one round? Yeah, suspect fired one round right blindly through the door. And <laughs> Never ceases to amaze me, man. Trained cops will fire 20 rounds, not hit anybody. Suspect fires one round through a closed door and 10 ring. Yeah, it's... It's terrible. So, terrible. okay, so he goes down. So he goes down, and uh, the assisting officers, one of our, our team guys at the time, had had brought his patrol rifle with him. So it's like, okay, you, you know, not fair enough, but you knew what – you suspected something that where you're bringing your patrol rifle with him. And we – you know, we don't have a policy where we have to ask for authorization to, to bring our long guns with us on certain calls, so – Hats off to him for saying, hey, I might need additional weapon, uh, firepower. But he had his rifle with him, sees Kevin go down, and he immediately returns fire into the uh, into the closed door, into the into the apartment, to the target location. I think he fired about five rounds. So he uh, and his thinking, I talked to him after the fact, and Manny says, he's like, yeah, I just, you know, he shot. I was, I was like, I'm going to end this right now and, and get cover for him because we want to rescue Kevin and get him out of the case, but we can't do that if we're under fire. So it was was pretty instantaneous, his reaction. 
He goes back and says that it's probably the worst decision that he ever made. And I'm not here to talk about, you know, I guess the decision that he made or did not make, but he was fearful that those rounds could have impacted somebody else unintended as, as the yeah, suspect. Sure. Of course. So, but it serves the purpose and uh, they at least were able to extract Kevin out of the, uh, you know, further down the hallway towards the landing uh, of the stairwell, the top of the stairwell where they brought him down into the uh, near the parking lot where they assisted in medical aid and, and I extracted him to the hospital. So that's where we, that's where we stood. So at what point does it, is it at that point they make a decision to push the red button, get you guys there and, yeah, I don't, I, you know, uh, the watch commander at the time after all that, after the, probably the radio chatter happened, and shortly after that it was uh, we're sounding the alarm and the team's coming. So we got the, we got the page shortly after, uh, right about one thirty, we were paged out in the morning, the, the, that following morning, so I guess it would be June 12th, right? Uh, yeah. June, June yeah. 12th, yep. which is not a good day. As you like to say, <laughs> yeah. it's mid-June is not a good day. Two years prior, we were just dealing with balls. But something about June in Orlando. Um, it's hot. Hmm? Hot. I'm it's, say it. Yeah, it's warm. It's warm. It's definitely warm. <laughs> we got the page for the, the call out and said officer down. And that honestly had been the first time that I had received a page saying that an officer was involved in something where we had one hurt and injured and shot officer down. Uh, come across and I was like, man, this is going to stink real bad. How long did it take you guys to get on scene and get set up? From the time the page out, we have always said, hey, we're going to have a 45-minute response time. But the time that page out and the time that we were pretty much deployed after our meeting and and, uh, team brief and had uh, some assets in place was – Probably over that, probably uh, an hour, hour and fifteen. So we were right about that, or about that time. But uh, we're just shy of that. Is that patrol officers are holding down, basically holding a perimeter? Yeah, we didn't. The patrol didn't vacate. They held, and they, st- you know, they continued their commands, and we took over from there. So, is the suspect engaging patrol at all? Is he responding? Is he negotiating? Radio silence from him. One shot, nothing. No movement, nothing. And no sign of the kids? No, none. None. So obviously mom is in our custody around the corner. She hears some shots and she's concerned. But after that, nothing. Not, you know, trying to call, no response. So what is the next milestone as we're moving through the project or through the problem? What's the next step that, that happens? So the pro- the problem when we get there, how about that? When the problem when we get there is, okay, what do we have? These are our charges. What's the structure? What's the target location look like? What communication do we have with him, if any, which was none? What are we, we, we know we, or we suspect we have four kids inside that are possibly being held by this. We know we have an officer down that he's willing to shoot through the door to to you know not go to jail but we were like all right is he holding them hostage or what's their status so we immediately said okay well let's treat it as a hostage situation because we had no other reason to believe it wasn't 
and we started deploying assets into a, you know an emergency hostage rescue team, and then we developed a deliberate hostage rescue team. We started doing the uh, you know the perimeter as far as relieving patrol and looking at the status of the occupants surrounding the target location, evacuating them. And then in the midst of that, we came across an uh, apartment on the next stairwell to the north. Again, mirroring image of the uh, of the target location that we were at. And they said, yeah, you can use our apartment. We said, can you leave it unlocked? And they said, yeah, use it all day. You know, we'll be over here, basically. So we just had our deliberate hostage rescue team just running rapid rep after rep after rep of saying make entry and figure out a plan they were developing their hostage rescue plan as they went and just rehearsing rehearsing rehearsal after rehearsal i remember Uh, initially standing there with them i was the deputy team commander uh, i guess the forward team commander at the time just saying okay you guys team leader you got it start working scenarios start working rescue at the front of the front bedroom we uh, from based on the fact that we have a mere image of the apartment that we are going to we could say okay if the hostages are located here but the suspect is deeper and we've accomplished the mission of hostage rescue now what are we going to do how how does that work if we make entry and we get two officers down what's how are we pushing forward to the next you know to accomplish the mission to save the additional hostages you know so you you just keep running scenario after scenario after scenario in a compressed time of, I need you to be ready in 30 minutes. So it's yeah. like, imagine having a whole hostage rescue training day of one specific location about small structure, small target location and saying, I need you to run every scenario possible right now Yeah, with fail breach, uh, with fail breach and officer down. Yeah. It sucks. Yeah. No, but I mean, it's, it's, you know, given, given the choice of, of having an opportunity to rehearse it repetitively or going in blind, uh, rehearse wins every day. A hundred percent. Well, then, then you also have okay, take a breather. Switch places with the emergency hostage rescue team, who is just sitting there blind, who yeah. have been provided a, like a a map yeah. of the general apartment layout, saying, "Hey, in case something happens, be ready to go." Well, what are we walking into? Hey, go take a rep go walk through and then we're going to swap back and do more work. So you just had this constant on and off of, of teams switching to do and plan and rehearse. That's a, it's a great strategy though, is, you know, set up a QRF and be ready if something kicks off, you know, unintentionally, but in the meantime, go plan the deliberate. And once the deliberate's planned, put them into the QRF role, take the QRF guys, get them delivered. Now you've got two teams that can relieve each other that, you know, it's, you're giving yourself some options uh, in the future. You're maneuvering in time, right? You're you're buying a future option of, of having two teams that are prepared for the problem. So what's next? What happens? So after, I mean, uh, after they kept rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing, and we're trying to establish some sort of communication with the with the suspect. One thing that we looked at was, all right, what what are some other avenues of approach? The problem with this structure, and it, I mean, it's just a crappy layout, and it's really not uncommon. It's probably super common on, across any jurisdiction. Is you got one point of entry, one point of exit. It's the front door. Yeah. Okay. The intel that we had was, and I think neighbors provided this was they believed that 
they heard furniture moving. So we were like, okay, so now we're dealing with entry A as pretty much the only point of entry on a second story structure as barricaded. Well, that hinders your, op- your, your, you know, deliberate or emergency officer rescue. Okay. So if it's barricaded, it's already, the door's already locked. Are we going to go up there and manual breach it? Well, let's, let's do explosive. Let's try to do a dynamic explosive breach. Well, at the time, the Orlando Police Department didn't have its own explosive breach program for our SWAT team. So we relied on Orange County's uh, explosive ordinance disposal unit. So we called them right away. We also looked at the structure and we said, okay, well, there's windows to the east side of the structure. There's several of them. We could exploit those by going through uh, those. What about ladders? Well, that takes time. Well, how do you break and rake them? Okay, that takes time. So there was just a lot of different options. We were like, oh, well, let's get the Seminole County Sheriff's Office, which is the uh, county just north of us. They have a regional asset with a MARS system or ramping system that would reach up. And they they were quick to respond. They came out. And we were like, they're, we looked at the terrain and it was like, that's just not conducive to actually hold the vehicle that would allow us to run up a ramp, break and rake, and make entry through a, uh, through a you know, Big ass window, I guess, if you could say. Yeah, yeah. I think just for context, that that Mars ramp system sits on top of a passenger van, if you will. So it's a it's a road vehicle with how, however much weight on top, sitting now on this sloped wet retention area that just wasn't feasible. Yeah, it's not, that's not going to happen. Right, it's going to slide down. It's going to flip over. It's you know, it's not something you can use as a platform to make an entry. It's creating a bigger problem than the problem that you already have. Yeah. So yeah. we said, okay, well, what other assets do we have in the in the area? And we've always had, well, since my experience has always been a, a great working relationship with the Orange County Sheriff's Office, specifically with their SWAT team. You know, um, I mean, Chris and I have known each other. We've probably competed each other as soon as I came on, which he's been on longer than I have, but. So we knew that they had this regional asset or this asset, at least to their agency, which is a rook, which is, how would you describe that? You do it's, uh, it's an up arm bobcat with a lot of great attachments. Which we've trained on it before. Yeah. And they brought it out once once they had it and they did their training. They're like, hey, you might need this one day. We'll bring it out to your site and train on it all day. And they, sure enough. And we we're like, man, this is great. And it offers uh, an ability to raise a platform that can deliver four to five operators, you know, up to a second story level. So it was it was perfect. And they were like, "Man, we'll bring we'll bring it out and we'll drive that thing out wherever we need to go," and it was going to work. And we we used it actually to break and rake uh, the large window, which ended up being, "Hey, that's our backup plan for entry." We're going to deliver these five, come down, suck up another five, raise the thing, the platform again, and deliver another five as they as they do work. Got it. So that's giving you now a secondary entry point to either put two teams in or, you know, you know if it is barricaded and in a different direction. Yeah, as the primary team would be working to say, hey, I need you to, whatever you encounter as far as barricaded door furniture. You know, you need to be moving men and move that stuff out the way and, yeah. and make do, make yeah, entry. get more resources. In. Get in there. Got it. And just from a mutual aid context, I think you, you kind of touched on it, but 
this was not the first time that you had met Chris, and this was not the first time that these two teams had seen each other. No, no. We had trained, we trained together quite a bit as, you know, two teams coming together. Um, I think we both probably practice somewhat different methodologies and use different tactics from, you know, uh, we don't sure. work to integrate with each other, but we can certainly get on the same job and assume different roles at the same time if we had to. Yeah, well, and, and I, I think, you know, it's kind of a recurring theme on the, on the podcast is that it's very rare that two teams are willing to integrate just because they're not constantly training together. And there are subtle differences in tactics and movement and, and everything else. But the value of you trusting their operators and them trusting your operators and a leadership to where you could divide a problem, um, e- even if you're willing to put the other team on a perimeter around yeah. you, is is you know in a situation like this where it's going to go on for a while and it's get you know going to get worse it's it's invaluable yeah i would oh, agree with that yeah 100 percent. it's and i always say this you know i'm unfortunate enough to at least get go around and talk to a numerous operators on planning and critical incident management and stuff like that it's it's not it's it's who you're able to call when you need to call you know do you know those people? You know, don't pick up the phone and be like, "Hey, we had a problem, you know, with each other. Our relationship was was shaky uh, last week, but now I need you." You know, it's like, yeah, they're gonna come help, but stop, bury the hatchet, and, and move forward. Have those relationships, you know, fostered and and growing. And I, I don't know, I don't know what, how else to to say it other than. Well, it's trust. It's trust, right? Yeah. In, in the end, it's trust. I, I'm going to guess that the explosive breaching component of this was probably you calling Chris or some, you know, two other guys on the team. Hey, man, I need explosive breaching. We're in route. Yeah, that's that's usually how it works. I mean, whether you know, up through the years. I mean, I came on the team in 2002, and I've gotten to know so many of their operators just from when I was a part-time guy, you know, in regular work and doing those kind of things and form great relationships. So it just bleeds over into the team as to what's going to happen after that. Yeah, it sets the culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so we had their uh, their e- you know, explosive ordnance uh, unit with us. They make charges. They made so we said, okay, we're gonna end up wanting to explosive breach this door, and we might end up wanting to have a secondary explosive entry on a wall, on an adjoining wall of an, of uh, the apartment that we uh, occupied. To the uh, to the other side of the target apartment, and we said we also want to use a huge charge to create a portal that people that operators can walk through, right? So if that's inc- going from from the adjoining apartment into into this the subject apartment, yeah. So if target if entry A is barricaded, and the breach would go, I have no doubt the breach and the breach ended up going. Uh, the breach works on the door, but we encounter resistance from stuff blocking our way. Simultaneously, I want another entry point into that through the adjoining wall of the apartment next to it, which we occupied, while also inserting somebody else on the opposite wall, which creates almost like that that blue on blue, if you will, blue on green, however you want to talk about it. Uh, that, you know, a friendly fire aspect of Hey, we could we could insert ourselves by doing that into a crossfire situation, and we started to realize that it was fine so long as we managed our our fields of fire, you know, and identifying if you if this happens this way, 
you are not responsible for this half moving in. Yeah, yeah, you're just, you're just allocating fields of fire yes. because you're you're basically allocating a field of fire to eliminate yeah. the potential blue on blue. And if you hear something over here, don't pop your head around the corner to engage because they're engaging. Yeah, got it. So it was a pretty, I call it a ballet, but it was a pretty intricate plan. And I never had, and this will come into later with, with Chris's thing, is I never had the ordinance people, they built the charge, they put it on the door, and I said, okay, good, thanks. Is it working? Yeah, it'll work. I said, all right, now take it off the door. And they're, why? I said, that's our only point. We're, we're calling to this person to come to us, and if he opens the door, is it going to cause him to go, well, I don't want to go out to that. What's going on here? And then and wrap it back in and say, nope, that was our last opportunity or our first chance to end the scenario. So I, I never had that. So it was an intricate part about, okay, we're going to execute this hostage rescue. Go, go, go. You put the charge on, back out, go. More diversionary tactics, break and rake of windows, uh, sounds, all sorts of nonsense. We It was an intricate plan to say, okay. And, I'll, and they were just sitting there on standby. But I'll, I'll hit on one point that you talked about with the relationships is the cool part about Orange County Sheriff's Office and their their uh, SWAT command staff is we had early on in the morning when we uh, called for our uh, our city bus service to come down and act as a rehab because in June in Florida and Orlando, Central Florida, it's, it's probably already starting off at 85 degrees in the morning at 5. And I'll get up to 103 quick so we said hey we, we're gonna need rehab for our resources that are on site meaning cooling station so that we could cycle operators through just to have a chance to sit down and take a breather and get some ac is their two of their commanders came by and they uh they sat with us for hours and they and they didn't say hey we should you should consider this you hey, what about this what they were just there what do you need what do you need? Always, what do you need? What do you mean we do? And we said, hey, this is our plan. This is what we're thinking. Boom, boom, boom. And we laid it out. Like, what do you think? And they were like, man, I don't have anything for you. That sounds like an excellent plan. That's probably what we would do. And we were like, okay, cool. But they're, I guess I tell that story because they were there from inception of sort of like quasi-planning. Yeah, well, just having the value of an objective opinion from a different team who looks at it differently is, uh, I mean, it takes it takes certainly humility on the part of your team to be willing to look at another team and say, hey, what do you see here? But it just speaks to the relationship between the two teams that you're not, you know, sometimes surrounding sheriff's office and city can have an adversarial relationship or it's them. It's the, I think one of the the key stories here is that this relationship was so good that they're in with you as you're planning and you're looking to them to, to kind of just murder your ideas. Um, you know, what are we doing wrong? What are we missing? And I think it also speaks a lot to the culture of the Orange County Sheriff's Department to be willing to put their commanders on site and just go, just tell us what you need. Like, we're, we're here to help. That's fantastic. Yeah, I think, I think in, our, in our area, in Central Florida, we're, we're definitely lucky for that. Okay, so you got a bus coming, which I mean, there's another interesting lesson learned there. From the beginning, you you guys identified, you know, heat and fatigue is a 
potential and a bus is a pretty novel way to keep your team cool because mm-hmm. it holds a lot of people has really good air conditioning and there's a there's a lot of them driving around uh, was that a pre-existing relationship that you guys had made with the transit company to be like hey can we borrow a bus yeah the, i mean the what's called links links is the uh the county uh, yeah. bus service uh those administrators those security personnel that work with that that are just top notch they've always been hey what can we do you know prior to this incident what what how can we help you you know we want you to learn our buses how to turn them on how to drive them how to open the doors if something happens on this bus you know so they're just again so we've trained on those buses we've we've know a lot of contacts at the at that that government entity and they were just they've always been willing to help step up so for us to call and say hey we just need you to bring a bus with a driver down here and it's just going to sit and if it sits too long and gas runs out we need you to bring another bus and they're like yeah okay whatever that's awesome okay so what's our next step here team stage you've got a plan breaching plan assistance from orange county for breaching what happens next nothing pretty it sucks to say it but I mean, attempts to negotiate, attempts to contact. I can't tell you how many times that we delivered throw phones to the front door, near the front door. Uh, we ended up deploying uh, listening devices that turned out we suspect to be just inadequate and inept and outdated that didn't work. It's a recurring theme. Don't feel bad about that one. No. So uh, to no avail. Um, just nothing, nothing happening. So we were, we were, you know, trying to uh, get eyes and ears into the inside. So then we reached out, well, how do we get eyes and ears into the inside of this apartment? So we said, well, we don't have the technology, but this other multi-jurisdictional that Orange County, Orlando, and several other agencies uh, contribute members to, which is uh, uh, like a narcotics task force i guess in the in the area they have technical capabilities where they have like pinhole cameras listening devices and and people so we said all right so we have a charge on the wall the joining wall the adjoining wall let's let's put pinhole cameras through the wall and try to see get eyes into the interior and we called those people out and they're willing to come they brought their their equipment and their people to do it because we were like oh we're not training this we don't know how to do it what you need so you guys do we'll provide you cover into the apartment that we own oh by the way you go over there and drill a hole in the wall and insert a pinhole camera don't don't yeah. mind the fact that don't, don't make too much noise don't mind yeah don't make the too last much... guy that came and knocked on the door but yeah good luck just guys. forget about all that do what you need to do hats off to them they did a phenomenal job that, under that's the a, that's a really ballsy that is a really ballsy tech that is like yep no i got this i can drill really quietly so and they did it after several attempts they were able to get it through and for anybody to think about, well, I just need you to drill through some drywall and, and insert a pinhole camera into somebody else's wall. Oh, yeah, that, that seems like a probably a five, ten-minute task. I think it's 
better half of an hour. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, I'm trying to... So the the poor decision that I made was, I'm going to mask your your movements, if you will, your, your the sound that you might generate sawing or drilling or whatever. I'm going to mask your movements by exterior sounds from my APC in the sound of, you know, just wailing the siren. Yeah. And it was just a bad decision. I was like, we don't, we can't hear. Because now, yeah, they're, they're covered, but I can't hear if that action, reaction, counteraction happens. You know, yeah. like, okay, if he hears something and it causes gunshots, I'm not going to be able to hear it. Now I can't affect a, a deliberate hostage rescue based on his actions. So it was a, I'll, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know a good cover sound other than you need to be really quiet when you do that and perfect it prior to actually executing it and see how much sound you're making and to know what you can get away with Yeah. come time. But we didn't, we didn't have that. So I was just masking sound and anytime we would do movements, whether it was the throw phone delivery, whether it was the sawing through the wall is just wailing the siren. It was probably the worst decision I ever made. Got it. What would you do now? I would train on putting an element in some room, in some training environment and saying, all I want you to do is listen for sounds cutting through this wall. And when you hear something, say, I hear you, I hear you. And then, hey guys, on the other side of the wall, guys, cut through this wall. If you hear, I hear you, I hear you, you need to go back and rethink how you're gonna do it. Yeah. And just train it over and over and over again. Because that's going to be your job when I need you. So, hey, you on the one side, you're the suspect. You on the other side, you're the good guy. Do your job. Yeah, get your stealth on. Yep. Yeah. Got it. So about what time are we at? The the oh. give, give me kind of, you know, approximate so timeline here. 130, uh, 2.30 deployment, 2 to 3. 2.30 to 3 uh, deployment, um, we inserted those texts around noon. Uh, keep in mind that we swapped out the cell, the throw phone, the old throw phone technology uh, three times. And, uh, and our third time ever from the suspect. Nothing. He doesn't, he doesn't make a noise. He doesn't pick anything up. He doesn't answer the phone. He is just stealth and disciplined. Yeah, there were some comments about making some posts or trying to contact the media somewhere early on, but that had gone away. It was just nothing, nothing. So when you talk about... And nothing from the kids. No sounds, no, no. no so childhood yeah, sounds, yeah. no... I think there was some... At one point after we had gotten there, there was some information that the one thing that they did hear was the sus suspect say, hey, don't go in there. Uh, that came over a listening device or something like that, but that was the only, to my knowledge, the only communication they got at all wow. inside the apartment. Yeah, so you're talking about four young kids, you know, early, like, I don't, ages. It was one to 12. Yeah, 12 is the max. So, that so are getting up early in the morning, you know, wanting to eat, wanting to play, wanting to watch Barney or, yeah, you know, whatever, whatever on TV. 
yeah, one, six, 10 and 12 year olds. You know, these kids are not going to be silent. And we even commented on that. It was like, okay, I have a six year old. I have a two year old. They're not quiet. Yeah. You know, but we don't hear anything. So is no that, one hears is that making you think maybe he's killed the kids already? There was a lot of talk about that. There was a lot of talk about they're probably already dead. But we didn't want to believe that. Yeah, it's difficult because you want to rescue the kids and you want to believe they're alive. And that's the whole reason that you're there. And there's nothing to indicate that that happened except that they're extremely quiet, which certainly points in that direction. I can see where it's conflicting. Yeah, so it's it's 100% conflicting in that she's adamant they're there. We're there to affect a hostage rescue, which we said, hey, this is why we're, we exist, right, to save these kids. And also we're there to say, you just shot our guy. Yeah. You're going to yeah, jail. You're going to jail. You're coming with us. One way or another, you're coming yeah. with us. Which brings up a you know, whole other thing. But um, but in essence, we're at, you know, we just go on and on and on. Um Yeah, so you guys at this point it's noon. You've been on scene for 10, 11 hours through the middle of the night. Yeah. Guys we're have been rehearsing, it. guys are getting tired. The several times the rain came, rain came and went, food came and went. Water came and went. Um, you you know, as a team, as a as a deputy team commander, you walk up to your team leaders and you go, "Hey, I need you to really focus on on your guys, making sure that they're operationally sound." Yeah, I need them here. All right, I know Kevin's, you know, been involved in something. We don't know his status. Focus on the mission at hand. This is the mission. We need to save these four kids. Okay, what are we doing, boss? What are we doing, boss? Just, hey, I know time seems like it's it's standing still, and they're working. They're working in the command post to come up with what we can do. We can only plan when and, and when the command comes down to say execute. We need to be able to go. So we just need to focus on what we need to do here, which is plan and be prepared. But then you just, as time goes on, you just see life just draining from them. Yeah. But you just, oh, how? No, we got this. We got this. Hey, and I individually walked around and said, "Are you good?" I mean, operator after operator after operator. Are you good? Look me in the eye. I'm, I need you. Just, no BS. You tell me. No, sir. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, it's it's an interesting as a, as a leader. It's an interesting quandary, right? Because like the guys have been there a long time. They're invested in it. They're doing everything they can to be alert and attentive. And the longer you wait there, the less likely it is to pop off, but the more likely it is to pop off. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I need you guys to be really attentive, even though you've been here for 12 hours. And at any second, this guy may come running out the door, guns blazing, you have to be ready. We may say go on, on the QRF, you know. Um, it, it, but, but about noon, you're starting to kind of do the math. Yeah, so uh, now about noon we do, but then also we, we insert the camera. We get the camera inserted. Finally, we get the inserted camera going after, I think, the second attempt. Uh, and that's not a knock on them. But uh, we get eyes in. We see it's dark. We see a ceiling fan spinning. It's totally dark. No movement whatsoever. And, okay, so now we know sort of some of the layout of the land. There was a door closed to the master bedroom uh, which will come into play later with Chris's thing. And we just said, all right, nothing, this is, we don't see movement. No one's moving. And this, that's not right. So five hours later, it's, 
all right, well, you know what? Let's try to get some more eyes inside this place. So we develop a plan uh, based on sort of that that entry plan with that rook. We said, okay, well, if you're going to give us the go to insert cameras in, to the, uh, the camera balls, we're going to insert some camera balls in this. We're going to say, we're going to take out that big window that we want to use and exploit as an, a, a method of entry in case all hell breaks loose and we're not able to make entry A or half B, I guess what you can call it. And we're going to take out that double pane two window with the rook and the, or that element. So they go up there they, and they say, okay, take it out and insert the camera. So they do. They go up there and uh, they break out that big-ass window up there on that on that one side. And they insert the camera balls and they insert two and they land right next to each other, go figure. Of course. And one sees the wall, which is awesome. It sees nothing. and then, But one does point down the hallway, which shows it's dark. It's all the doors are closed. So, again, nothing moving. But that's around the 5 o'clock hour. And at this point, it's like, okay, again, we could use, we use that as a, um, doing something to spark a reaction, gains us intelligence, gains us that point of entry, we're prepared, but no, no reaction, no suspect reaction. No, hey, get out of here. Hey, you know, no shots fired, thank goodness, but nothing. No drones at this point, no ground robot, no... Secondary tech. There was some drones flying on the outside. Um, I think that was all not in, in, inside of SWAT type drones. That was more agency level yeah. type, yeah. you know, man post gathering information. Got it. So about, man, right after that, after we gained that entry or I guess access to that window and then inserted those camera balls is shortly after that, we said, listen, we're done. We're, our, our people are taxed. We, we can't stand in here anymore. Do nothing. Not that we're doing nothing. We work to work, but we were, that's it. That's where we're at. Yeah, and at that point, you guys have been there for? It was 16 hours. 16 hours, yeah, 15 hours. 15, yeah. 16 hours. So we said, hey, you know what? We need uh, we need to make the call. So Say, you reach out to, well, Chris's team is already there, basically. So oh. yeah, well, they're there. I mean, so I mean, the, no. leader, the leadership is there, right? The yeah. leadership's there. I think the team's there. They they made the call. And the, the, the problem is, okay, guys, you know, we we de- we delivered the message of, hey, we did what we could. We're here. We were prepared. We we're ready. In your eyes, you may think that we did nothing, but we we're ready. But we're we're transitioning now. So once they got that message, they thought, oh, they're gonna come right in, and it, you know, five minutes, I'll be out of here. Little did we know, like. Almost an hour later, our actually team is actually moving because the transition just takes that long. It's kind of kind of messed up. Not messed up in that it shouldn't take that long. It just takes it just takes that, that long. long. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just you know going out and replacing position by position and handing it off and briefing what they see and everything else is a lengthy process. Yeah. Seems like it should take five minutes and takes an hour. Yeah. yeah so yeah. When, when Chris showed up, I was like. Hey buddy, good to see you. But yeah, I'll be, I'll be back. Enjoy. Yeah. So this was interesting for me. Um, I had actually gotten a call that this was occurring, literally right as I was walking out of the gym. My commanders called me and said, "Hey, this is going on over here." Um, so I drove over, probably parked about a mile away, probably between like Universal Studios and where the target location was, just in a parking lot. Um. 
you know, for me, I think one of the worst times to be on a call out in Florida is when you're going from nighttime into the morning, you know, that dark to day, and then the heat comes with the humidity. And so I'm thinking that it's going to be a relatively early kind of transition. Um, and I sat in my truck until about six o'clock at night when they finally paged us out. Um, one of the things about it is, is that the, my team knew what was going on. So kind of instead of guys just off doing random things and getting a surprise call, they sort of knew it was coming. Just nobody knew when. Yes, but guys, guys are not, you know, they're not going to the gym. They're not going for a two-hour drive. They're, right. they're staying close and being ready. Yeah, yeah. So we got, the, we got the page out, and, of course, by that time, it took me about two minutes to go from where I was to the scene. Um, I got to the command post, jumped out of my truck. My lieutenant was there, um, who I've worked with for – I came up on the team with the guy, so, you know, very good relationship. Um, basically, he hands me a floor plan that's get provided by the complex. He says, here you go, it's flipped. Um, so, you know, opposite direction. Uh, and he says, how many people do you need? And so I looked at it real quick. I said, 10. He said, okay, there's really no exigency right now, but, you know, this is kind of what we're going to do. And I hadn't had the information about the apartment yet, so I took that floor plan, flipped it over, and drew it in reverse. I'm not a big floor plan guy. Like, I don't like to give out floor plans. Uh, back years ago, guys would have a tendency to figure out the direction they wanted to travel prior to even going inside the door. So, you know, and we've had, I don't know how many bad floor plans drawn, you know. Um, so the last thing I wanted the operators to be thinking about is, well, here I go left. It shows go left, but really I'm going to go right. And, you know, I'm real big into the mindset of the operator, so I didn't want to cloud that in that yeah, process. Yeah, makes sense. That's yeah, an interesting approach. Um, so basically operators started showing up, and we had our, our team brief, and, you know, snipers were replaced. Our snipers went to their snipers' plat locations, I had met with John. I think we probably talked for maybe three minutes. It was it was pretty quick as far as the conversation goes. Um, we didn't talk really much about his plan or things like that that were going on. And we met actually between the command post and the target location. So we're kind of in no man's land at that point, um, which is an interesting dynamic because in John's position, he's kind of going back and forth. He's got control down range as a forward commander. And you were a lieutenant. Um, but he can go back and forth. When I go down, I, I stay there. So it's a different, kind of one of those differences we were talking about in the teams and how we function and things like that. But sure. So uh, John had told me that they had the apartment. So to get to that walkthrough apartment, we had to uh, basically walk by the target location, you know, so kind of literally saying, hey, what's going on to a bunch of their operators as we're walking to go do that. Um, our immediate action team had gotten to place and replaced their immediate action team. So that was kind of getting the ball rolling. Um, but now we're going to see the apartment first, first look. So where John was doing all of these rehearsals for all that time, we're now coming into it. Yeah, we've, for we've, us, right? we've reset the whole problem right, basically. Right. Yeah. So we're turning back the time, right? Um, so we went up there to the apartment. John was with us. I had a, uh, one of our, um, EOD guys with us. Um, and we started just looking at the apartment. Um, we, we do hostage rescue training a lot. We did back then. Um, so we, we knew kind of the general choreography of what was, this was going to look like. Um, but it was nice having this apartment that was the exact same layout. Um, so as we went in there and started to look at it, as you walk through that door that 
you know, John had mentioned that one door that goes in. Basically, it opens kitchen straight, living room sort of straight and left, and but right there on the left is the entrance to the master bedroom, which there was information that suggested that he had gone in there. Um, so as we went in there and looked at it, you know, the floor plan in, in and of itself wasn't difficult, um, but one of the first things that happened is as you walk into that master bedroom, which was an in-opening door, immediately almost on your left is an out-opening bathroom door. Oh, so the two doors are in conflict? Well, they are, um, but again, it's an out-opening door, and what if the door's locked? And there's information to suggest, so, you know, this guy's probably going to try to put himself in, in a good position of advantage, which to me is that bathroom if he's in that master suite kind of area. Um, so having that kind of dilemma, um, one of my, bre my breacher was there, and I said, you know, what are we thinking about this thing? And his first question was, well, can we IDC the door? So I looked at the EOD guy. I said, hey, if he's got the baby in the bathroom and we IDC this door, what do you think? And he was like, mm. I said, okay, never mind. Like, that's all I need to hear. Yeah. Right? I don't need a full yeah. disclaimer. Yeah, you're, he's, you're he's, the response guy you the, he's doing the math and he doesn't like the yeah, math right, work. Right. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> and, you know, I'm not an explosive guy, so I, I'm listening to him. Yeah. Right? So then I said, well ballistic breaching would be great on this thing you know out opening door we can stay out of the threshold it'll be quick so on and so forth so i make a phone call and try to um that county to the south of us at the time all of their patrol supervisors had shotgun breaching capabilities in their cars uh, we didn't have it on the team so i made a phone call to try to get it and um was given a very definite no you can't have that so i tried to plead my case a little bit and about the fourth no i said okay we're gonna have to get away from this so I went back to the breacher. I said, okay, if you hit the door with the ram on the doorknob, maybe it'll push the doorknob out of the door. We'll just pull the door open. Now there's a hole. There's no engagement. And uh, he says, okay. I said, well, give it a shot. So now we're in somebody else's apartment. We're about to put their, their <laughs> bathroom door. Yeah. Into, you know. In somebody else's apartment, destroying yeah. their door. So um, he, he lines up on the door. Door lock mechanism comes out. Goes right into the bathroom. Beautiful. And... The makeup of the door, because it's just a, it's an apartment interior door, the force of the hit actually folded the door past the door stop on the jam. So now it's literally stuck on the wrong side of the door jam. Oh, boy. Um, so the next plan was, okay, John, I want you to take the ram and throw it through the door and make a port in the door. So that was kind of the plan with that dilemma. Um, I had walked through more of the apartment. Um, gone to the back bedroom, looked in the closet back there. There was a walk-in closet back there, and it was interesting about this that I remember, and I always come back to it, is, is it was stacked with stuff. I mean, it was just clothes and boxes, and, I mean, the door opened, but you, could, you weren't putting yourself inside there. You would have literally had to start taking stuff out close from the door and then worked your way to the back if that's what you wanted to do. Um, so that was kind of one of those interesting things about that. So we had a... Uh, Established a plan. Um, you know, our, we train hostage rescue for known and unknown locations. Um, and uh, basically the, the plan that we had come up with, which, again, not talking to John, um, our primary entry point was going to be through the wall. We were going to use the explosive breach that was on the wall. Um, the, the window that they had ported uh, was certainly in the mix with that, along with the uh, walkthrough door. 
but I didn't have a whole lot of information on what was on the other side of that door yet. Yeah. So that's inward swinger, obviously. In, in, inward yeah. swing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so we've heard these moving furniture. Right. So there's, a, there's a potential, right? Yeah. There may be yeah. a giant pile of dresser behind it. Right. Right. Um, so that, that wall became the primary entry point and I had actually worked it to where we were going to do a known location response to the master suite area because that's where the information was that he, he was in there. And then I was going to run an unknown contingent through the rest of the apartment to try to get as much access to it as quickly as we could. Um, so and, two, two entry teams, one going direct to the, yeah, split the bedroom and yeah. then the others trying to clear the rest of the, yeah. So that, that wall port put us more towards the front side of the apartment, but was pretty central in the apartment, uh -huh. right? Um, so about that time, once we kind of wrapped all that, uh, we moved over to the, uh, the door or over to the target and um, started kind of, again, now we're relieving the deliberate team, John's deliberate team. And, you know, guys are like, hey, let us leave the parking lot before you do anything. Like, like <laughs> this is the conversation we're yeah, having, you know? Yeah, of course. And, you know, uh, it, it, I recognize that kind of stuff because, you know, they've been there 16 hours. One of their cops has been shot, you know? So yeah. it's, it's, it's a tough thing to want to let go of. Yeah, right? for sure. Um, but still, I think as, as weird as we SWAT people are, you know, those conversations still happen. Like, hey, wait till I leave the apartment, the, the, the parking lot, you know? Yeah, it's also just gallows humor, right? It's yeah, just right, like, you, right. you know, you don't know how long it's going to take, right. but you know as you're leaving, it's like, God, if these guys go in there and in five seconds resolve this, you know, I'm going to hate them. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, like I said, we, my team got there about 6.30. Um, I started to move over to the target location at now 7.30. Um because I knew that living room window uh, had been breached, as I'm walking to the apartment, I had two operators grab a dumbbell robot because I wanted it thrown in that window. It was one of the first things because I wanted to get recent eyes into the apartment. So I had two operators go around and do that. Um, as they did that, um, I also called and had the explosive breach put back on the uh, main entry door. Um, I wanted it back there. I understand why John took it off. Um, but I wanted it there. You know what? I'm, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, but I think, I think I screwed up. I think I screwed up our timeline. I want to go back and it, I don't mean to interrupt you, Chris. No, no, it's I, fine. Absolutely. I but I think this, it should be noted that this event, the patrol event started on the 10th of June, the late night hours of 10 June of 18. SWAT response was, the 11th, early morning of the 11th. So we never made it to the 12th. Got it. Yeah. So, so we, Sorry about we that. said it started on the 11th and yeah. transitioned to the 12th. It actually starts on the 10th and transitions to the 11th. Yes. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, yeah. I realized, you know, you guys were up for a long time. They just kind of run together. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So, Chris, you were, you were, um, setting us up. You were replacing the, the main charge, replacing the charge in the main entrance. Yeah. Um, so we, we put that explosive charge on. So now we have the explosive breach charge on the wall. We have the one on the uh, the door, um, and of course we have the rook with that living room window. And if I kind of draw the picture, if you're looking at the backside of this apartment building, um, if you go from where that master bedroom is on the front side, um, you basically have a small bedroom window, then the large living room picture window, and then two bedroom windows further left, if that makes sense. Just a 
because I'm probably going to talk about some windows here and just to kind of give some context to where, where I'm talking about. Walk me through that one more time. So if you're looking at the back of the building where the target location is, yes, um, from basically where the stairwell is, the breezeway, okay. you have a standard bedroom window. The next window to the left as you look at it is a larger living room, living room window. Then there's two windows further to the left that are also definitely bedroom windows. Does that make sense? Kind Got of draw it, yeah. So you're looking like bedroom, you? living room, bedroom, bedroom. Yeah, right. Or right. bedroom, living room, bedroom yeah, with yeah, two windows in yeah. it. Yeah, and I only say that just because I'm going to talk about some bedrooms that were windows and things like that. So just kind of draw a picture if I can mentally. Yeah, but totally. Um, so yeah, so that charge goes back on. Um, we have the plan with the known location, uh, unknown location split to the wall. Um, and that dumbbell robot that we threw in, we were able to confirm that he had essentially taken, you know, all of the stick furniture that was in the eating area. So a dining room table, some wooden chairs, some of the other furniture from the living room, things like that, and kind of pushed it up against the door, which was a tight, confined space anyways. I mean, it was a short hallway foyer entry into an apartment that was now jammed with furniture. Yeah, right? so John, John's suspicions, like their team's suspension, suspicion of this yeah. was accurate. There's stuff right. piled across the door, and the door is not a valid yeah. entry point. Yeah, so um, kind of what was happening simultaneously to that is the Rook team um, had the platform on, and they put a team of five because uh, they wanted to start probing this master bedroom window. So um, they start going up, and again, with the information that he was in there, they go up to that window, and as the platform raises, <clears throat> they start looking in the windows. They don't see anything inside the window as far as the suspect or any kids or anything like that, but they do confirm that the bathroom door is closed. Um, so kind of draws my attention back to the issues that we had at the walkthrough apartment dealing with that. Uh, as they're doing that... There was a, so we had gotten this, we had had this rook for many years and we had just upgraded it. And one of the upgrades was, is that the new platform was larger, but it was also somewhere around a thousand pounds heavier. And, um, we had probably had it back for a couple of months. And as the five operators are up on the platform dealing with this window, basically the height, there's a hydraulic release, which causes the platform to kind of jerk and fall forward. Oh, God. Um, yeah. So um, one of the operators actually fell, um, and they ended up extracting him. Uh, he had hurt his back. Um, so they Fell off of the platform? No, he fell on the platform, okay. but the way he fell, it was it injured his back. When it's the platform with the shield on it, right? Yes. So yeah. he falls, basically, he gets thrown into the shield. Thrown into the shield, yeah. yeah. That'll yeah. do it. Um, so they ended up extracting him with his injury, so he's out. And, of course, I'm hearing this all play out in my mind, so... Again, you know, as soon as I get that little brief instance of negativity, like it's not a thing anymore. So now if there's any consideration of putting operators up into the living room window, my confidence at this point in that hydraulic release with five operators on it again and repeating the same thing is not kind of in existence. Yeah, so yeah it's falling now, off a cliff. Yeah, right. So now I'm really dealing with that wall and that door entry is my primary thoughts. Um so they had done that and, you know, a couple, there was a few conversations happening outside. Of course, you know, when you get on one of these things, all of your operators come up with every possible idea that's known to man as to how we're going to fix this thing. Um, and again, kind of as soon as there's a little bit of a negative that outweighs the positive for me, like maybe we should do an explosive breach through the floor or the ceiling from the apartment above and just kind of right into the bathroom. Well, what if the ceiling falls on the baby? No, that's not a thing. Right. So I'm 
kind of playing all these different ideas, getting, you know, bounced off me and things like that. And um, they put the ram on the rook now, and they move over to the far left window as you're looking at it, which is going to go into a bedroom that would be at the deep end of the hallway in the apartment. So the rook operator, um, that plat that, I'm sorry, that ram has five cameras on it, one up, down, left, right, and straight ahead. Um, and as he pushes the ram through the window, it actually catches the leg of a set of bunk beds. So there's a set of bunk beds kind of in the corner, and one of the legs basically is going straight down the center of the window, the way it's set up in the room. So the ram kicks that leg, the bunk beds fall to the floor, the top, and falls down to the bottom. And uh, the operator comes up on the radio and he tells the command post he's going to be giving him a call. So I kind of give a little bit of time for that phone call to happen. And then I call the rook operator on my phone and I said, you got kids, don't you? He said, yep. I said, okay. Uh, probably no sooner that I hung up the phone with him, I get a call from my lieutenant. And that conversation is, do you want to go soft? Do you want to go hard? And I said, well, we're going to go hard. He says, okay, start putting it together. So kids at this point are dead? Uh, not confirmed, but they didn't move, right? Um, so now we're talking life preservation at this point. Yeah. Um, so he says, okay, start putting, putting things together. And I walked over to my team and, you know, we had talked through this a bunch of times and we, you know, I had, I had the talk where I looked at all of them and said, who's not ready to, to do this, uh, which they all were. And I said, Hey, you guys want to go soft? Do you want to go hard? And they all said, we're going to go hard. I said, good. Cause that's what I told the Lieutenant. Um, so we started putting things together. We had our final assault position, which was going to be kind of at the, almost towards the top of the stairwell going to the second story. And so now we're going to go up, turn right into that adjoining apartment, and then turn left to step through the wall. And then I had a secondary team who was going to come up the other stairwell and be basically responsible for that main walkthrough door into the apartment. So um, now we're kind of about, you know, quarter to nine at night. So we've, we've been working this thing for probably two hours and 15 minutes or so. Um, and... Um, get one kind of one kind of final conversation with the command post, make sure everybody's good. I said, yep. And he goes, okay, on you. So I line my team up towards the top of the stairs, give a countdown for the breaches. They go off with just that little bit of, tiny bit of, you know, separating both of them, not both going off at exactly the same time. So I give the countdown. I give our call to initiate the, uh, the rescue. Um, I was the third person up the stairs, and as I turned right into that apartment, for like two steps through the threshold, I was completely blind just because of all the dust and everything from the, from the explosive breach. As I came through um, and was able to see, I saw my number two operator who's turned around looking at me, which is obviously not the desired effect, and he says, failed breach. So I said, no way, and I literally moved him to the side and looked around the corner, and it was, it was a breach. But what we didn't know is that the, the wall had, the interior of the wall was not like any interior wall I'd ever seen. I mean, it wasn't just 16 inches on center. It was two, two by fours, 16 on center with cross pieces and everything else like that. I mean, it was pretty robust for an interior wall. So it's a structure wall. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, wall. It's, yeah. Holding yeah. like a whole nother level of yeah, yeah. apartments and, and, above it. Yeah. Too, and, I, and I'm a SWAT guy. I'm not, I'm not the builder guy. So, you know, um, so I 
stuck my head out of the apartment door and I look and they had a successful breach on the other entry door. Um, the door was literally just kind of, it was off hinges, but it was there because of all the stuff that was there. They pulled that out. And uh, right about at that time is when I got on the radio and called the command post. And, you know, you never forget when you tell somebody failed breach on a real life operation. Um, and even they would say there, like the air just came out of everybody back at the command post. <laughs> um, so uh, a couple things that happened. I, I, we made the decision that we we're going to start moving the furniture out of the way. Um, they, you know, some people have talked about just rushing through the furniture and things like that, which it wouldn't have been effective based on what he had there. Um, so they start basically methodically pulling furniture from the other side of the door out into the hallway. Um, the two operators that I had go into the apartment first that were going to be the first two through the wall. I basically told them, you guys go downstairs and set it out. You're, you're done for a little while. Um, of course they looked at me like all good operators would and said, we're good. I said, that's fine. Just go downstairs. Um, because you know, in my mind, they were just about to go through a wall following an explosive breach on a hostage rescue on a guy who would, you know, shot another officer and things like that. And then it was failed. So just like the air came out of the command post at some point, these guys are going to have a crash too. And, and I just kind of wanted them to go just away. Yeah, just right. before the adre adre uh, adre adrenaline yeah. dump. Thank yeah. you. Before the adrenaline dump hits them. And, right, right. Yeah. And, you know, I have no reason to even say that it would happen, but it was just a thing. Yeah. Um, so they started working the furniture, um, got that pulled out, and um, that was probably a, a total time, maybe 20-minute ordeal, something like that. And while that was happening, we had put teams of two back on the platform on the Rook, and they were launching 40 millimeter gas rounds into the apartment, um, some tri-chamber. Um, I'm, I'm somewhat of a fan of, you know, those closed doors with the closet and right angles and things like that to where you can affect those closets and things like that. So by the time it was over and, and we had gotten all the furniture out to where we were going to make entry, pretty much every door or every room in the apartment had been affected with the exception of the hallway bathroom. Um, so we started to make an entry. Uh, first thing we came to was the master bedroom door, which was closed but unlocked. So that came open. Uh, actually, I'm sorry. I'm confusing my doors. That master bedroom door was locked and closed. Um, I called a breacher up to, to work the door, and this is a guy who has hit thousands and thousands of doors. And this was another one of those times where reality struck, and um, he literally drew the ram back and threw it at the door while he was running out of the, the threshold. Um, I've had conversations with that guy after, and it was just, it, it became a real thing. You know, you hit so many doors, and there's no reality, but again, coming back to Kevin being shot, yeah, it became a thing. Um, so that's kind of what really drew my attention into the mindset of operators and things like that over time. Um, the door came open, and that master bathroom door that opened out that we thought was going to be such a problem just popped right open and there was nobody home. Um, so now we had to go and continue to look through the rest of the house. So we moved up into the living room uh, to a point right where it went into the hallway. The first door on the left was cracked, closed but cracked. Um, the bathroom door was on the right towards the end of the hall that was closed and then the, bathroom, the bedroom door straight at the end of the hall was closed. 
Um, before we entered into the hallway, I again had brought one one of my grenadiers in, had him put, I think, three or four rounds of 40 millimeter through the bathroom door. One to see if we got any kind of a response to just to kind of fill that final last spot. So we're literally standing in the living room shooting into the bathroom door that's about 15 feet down the hall. So we had no response there. Um, moved into the first bedroom on the left, uh, another set of bunk beds that was kind of opposite wall. Um, one of the male kids was up top. One of uh, the second male child was on the bottom bunk. Um, they had both been shot in the head. Um, we continued to move down the hall, got into the bathroom. Nobody was there. Made entry into that last bedroom straight um, where that initial set of bunk beds had gone down. Um, and that's where we found the 12-year-old daughter and the one-year-old daughter both shot in the head. So the only thing we had left at that point was that closet um, in that bedroom that hadn't been cleared. Um, operators moved over to it. Um, turned the knob, pushed it open, and it opened about six inches, and it was stopped. Uh, the operator looked, and it was basically the suspect's foot was stopping the door. We, I called in a breacher, um, came in, he worked the hinges, and the guy had was self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Pretty recent. Um, Coward. Sure. Um, but it had, it was, we were certainly in the apartment, at the time he shot himself. Um, oh, really? I would, I would guesstimate it was probably the time that we were firing the 40 millimeters into the, uh, into the bathroom um, is when he did it. In fact, some of the operators heard a small pop. Um, they thought it maybe was a, a gas canister or something that hadn't gone off yet. Um, but by all best estimates, it, would, it was probably him in the closet. It was a pretty small caliber hang. I think it was a 32, something like that. Yeah. Um, and he was inside that closet. Um, but again, you know, I kind of come back to the fact that thinking about that closet before on the walkthrough and then finding him in that closet, you know, um, a little bit of foreshadowing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and kind of one of the things that, that I kind of talk about when we, when John and I do this is, you know, from what we got out of this is when you do these walkthroughs, which are a great luxury, um, try to look at just the, the bare walls. Don't see it for what it is, but see it for what it could be, right? So that closet being jam-packed full doesn't mean the closet over there yeah. is jam-packed full. Yeah. You know what I mean? What, yeah, the neighbor being a hoarder does not mean that the, the right. suspect is right. a hoarder. Yeah. I mean, it might have been a great place for another explosive charge, thinking differently, you know, yeah. potentially knowing he was in there. So, yeah. So why don't we talk through, because, I mean, obviously there's a lot there's a lot to this. Let's talk through some of the lessons learned here. Um, I mean, it, it, do we know, have any approximation as to when the kids were killed? I think based on all the, you know, looking back and reviewing some of the, the CAD notes and stuff like that, when I think pretty much after the initial volley, you know, the shot fired by the suspect, Kevin going down, Manny returning some fire and then extracting Kevin, then working on him is calls initially came into the uh to the comm center saying hey there's stuff going on and our our reaction to that was well yeah we were there for yeah, there were uh, shots fired there we were shots we fired, fired that was yeah. us and him and you know back and forth what i think they determined was or they suspect I, I guess you could say is one of the occupants whether it was below or above or whatever 
a good four minutes had elapsed before. Hey, um, I just heard heard shots in the apartment, like above or below. Got it. And it was a. They described. I think. I think they described it as like a, like a cadence type. I heard a couple, and then I heard a couple. Yeah. Went into one bedroom, shot both kids. Went in the other bedroom, yeah, shot so, both kids. You know, and I think the uh, I think even the medical examiner had said they had, they had, you know. Yeah, you guys never had a chance. No, yeah. and it, it was a thing for me, and and I know for my guys. I mean, it was it was apparent that the kids had been dead for some time, right? So, so that hit home. I think with with my team was we debriefed after the fact, and they were just torn. Well, one, not only because it's like, why did Orange County get to come in and immediately start doing work? And it's like, guys, what are you talking about? That That's not our play. That that was on them. One, I don't like to say this a lot, but it's, it's I don't, I don't feel bad. I guess I do feel bad. We all feel bad for the fact that four, four kids, you know, lost their life to an evil maniac. But I. I don't feel bad that my operators didn't get have to witness what his operators did. Yeah. You know, that's it's just a whole nother level of just that sucks yeah. to deal with. Yeah. So imagine being on scene for 17 hours and then you witness. Yeah, and then you find that. that. You know, so which horrible. So Yeah, many, said, in many ways it was it was merciful that it wasn't your team. Yeah, I said so we debriefed and they said, you know, a big thing was well we didn't get the win. We didn't get the win. There wasn't I'm one. like who said and I reverted back to some of some of the early training that we did where we did a hostage rescue scenario on a, a kid uh daycare and the scenario instructor said, you know, put this scenario together where ten kids end up dying and the self inflicted the hostage takers just killed themselves. And we ended that scenario with a deliberate you know, emergency hostage rescue and we were like, Wait, wait, we didn't even get to kill the hostage takers yeah. and they all the everybody's dead. What is this? And they were like, he's like, well, who ever said that you're ever going to do that? Be able to win like that. So I was like, man, that's, that's, it's deep. It's deep when you realize that. And I think Clint Bruce, who was like, uh, he delivered a lot of speeches, but former Navy SEAL did, you know, talks about, he's a former Navy SEAL and he talked about how, it's we always win. It's, it's it's not the always win factor. It's it's not we're always victorious. It's the whether you define you are victorious, as, you're winning as you are victorious, or you realize what you came short of. You fix those problems, and you'll get beat another day, you know, a, a different way. But so I just said, guys, we we were there. We were prepared. We were ready. If we had green light, we would be go. We'd probably you know encounter the same problem. It, it's an interesting training question um i was with a team recently that uh, they were doing a medical exercise and had a teammate and they had to medevac the teammate and they get him to the you know the mock doctor and the doctor's like he's dead and and the team was like why would you do that I'm like why he's like because that's a real possibility and they then subsequently had a horrific event mm-hmm. uh, oddly enough the same guy shot very badly fortunately he survived this time but uh, and, and, you know, in the real world, but it, it's an interesting question for teams that are training because you do tend to train to victory because right? sure. everybody, you want to win. Yeah. Don't kill my guys. Kids. Don't kill my guys. Yeah. Yeah. Like my, my guys all survived and, and, and everything worked out fine. And unfortunately, you know, that isn't always the case. And, and in this case, 
there's not much either team could have done. Uh, I mean, maybe you could have gotten the suspect a little bit sooner, but he was he already had a, a plan that was he yeah. was going to execute no matter what you did. So it, it is it is very frustrating. Yeah, and I think you know always the training, right? I mean, um, to John's point, I just finished the hostage rescue evolution with my team and set up a scenario, and and I, they weren't winning it. Like they won it because they had the opportunity to save. We used dummies that you know real that put out blood and things like that, and it puts it on a clock to how soon you stop the bleeding and things like that. Oh well, um, and you know, so that they have the opportunity to win and that they can stop the bleeding and you know get them to greater care and things like that. But they're shot, like the victim and the suspect are shot when they get in the room um, by design, because can you now transfer from that thought process of we always go in, we positive target ID on our suspect, we shoot them, and then we, you know, set up and evacuate the, the hostage. Well, okay, can you go in there and transition to medical care, right? So, because mm-hmm. those are very real things too. Oh, um, for sure. Yeah. You know, we we always do the best we can to try to, you know, cover as much of the, the structure as we can on these hostage rescues and get operators there and, you know, create dilemmas for the suspect and everything like that, but it's still a period of time. Um, I think there was an incident not too long ago in a bank where there was a hostage rescue and they played it back on body worn from an explosive breach to first shot on the suspect was 1.8 seconds, um, which is pretty good. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, in that time, the suspect had three victims on their knees in front of him. He was able to shoot two of them. So, I, I mean, you know, that's, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting thing. Um, the other thing is I think that we, you know, uh, how do we know when we have a hostage scenario? You know, we all SWAT guys, I mean, that's what SWAT teams do is they're there for hostage scenarios. And, you know, it's a, it's a very black and white way to look at it when you say, well, you got to have a hostage and you got to have threats and you got to have means to carry out the threats. Well, kids in an apartment for, I mean, at what point do you make that decision where something has gone wrong here? You know what I mean? So yeah. with their own dad. Right. right. Yeah, with their you own know. father who has not threatened them. Right. Who right. has not said anything. Yeah. So so you have no threats. You know there's a weapon in play, but you don't I mean, you obviously know that it, it's been in use before, right? But, you know, when do you draw that? And I say it to my guys all the time. This is not a black and white world we live in. It's very gray. Yeah. Um so those conversations have to be had with commands and say, Hey, listen, we might not have this thing. But have you thought about this thing? You know what I mean? And, and that's kind of one of the big learning points that I take away from it is how do you look at this and, you know, could it be, is it absolute or is it implied? You know, things like that. Do I need to have a gun to have means to kill somebody? Well, and, and you raise a really valid point, which is I think it's very easy, like we were saying earlier, you know, training to victory, training to win. It's very easy to create a training scar where this is what a hostage situation looks like. And it always plays out this way. And like you said, one and a half seconds shoots two victims. Like it, right. it doesn't yes. always play that way. And, and I, what do you think the best way to resolve that from a training standpoint, what can teams do in training that you think helps to counter that? Oh, man, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I mean, um, it, it's definitely a question that I think deserves some thought, but I would tell you that, um, you know, you can't, we, we always try to train our teams for the best victory and the best win. And, and we want to be able to say that our teams are the best. So we, we create this performance that makes us kind of believe that. Um, 
but when they come under adversity, and I mean, I know that when my team has come under adversity, it's always better on the other side. So I don't know if there's an answer to where you're creating losses and then they come out better. Of course, you don't want them to be so beat down that they can't, they don't ever believe in themselves. But there's a fine line between what's reality and, and what's not. Um, you know, we often run hostage rescue with no port and covers or break and rake teams working at the same time. And it takes forever for the operators to get to that room if they don't know where it is. You got to kind of remind them, hey, we're going to have other assets in this thing. You know, we're just a sh- small group of guys right now running CQB reps for hostage rescue. You don't have those other assets in place that we're going to have that will help us win this thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I can't, I, I don't think I could say more on that. That's, it's pretty good. The, the scenario sucked. I mean, John, when you talk about what are the, some of the problems that we encountered or how we tailored or, you know, identified shortcomings and stuff like that, we looked at second story apartments, you know, just the target location. Okay, this sucked. We really never trained or thought about this location before. Let's acquire equipment. Let's acquire training and tactics on this specific. So if you could think about the most horrific type of target location, I guess you could say, is like, this is going to suck. Train on that, you know? Um, Relying on outside resources, and it's it's not to knock again, uh, you know, those that came to assist, whether it was the listening devices or the explosive breaching, but relying on outside resources when you have the ability to in-house train those and, and be able to communicate with those on a tactical level, hey, stand up your own. And, and that's what we've done since then, and I think what Johnny has done since then as well, is stand up our own explosive breaching program. Get that equipment that is necessary. What about those listening devices? Train those people on your own team. And so we don't have to call in those and put those in harm's way that not necessarily we have the time to, to get dedicate that. And then just overall, I think the underlying thing is, man, we, we stretched our guys way too long in, into the fatigue factor. We are operationally not ready should the call be said, hey, go, go, go. So... That was a failure on our point to say, we got to give this up sooner, you know, so recognize that fatigue factor. And I think now it's max 12 hours and that's max. Yeah. Set the yeah. hard cap. And that, I mean, that could be eight hours. I mean, we're in Florida. You know, I couldn't imagine doing this in Wisconsin when it's, <laughs> when it's colder. Yeah. yeah. Cold. You're looking at a four hour operational window yeah. of people outside standing there. Waiting. Yeah. It's interesting. I interviewed, uh, um, actually, the guy that's going to be a keynote speaker at the NTOA tomorrow morning, uh, Bob Kuntz, who's a, a submarine you know, submarine captain. Yeah. And he talked about how there are just certain things that they call tripwires, that when that happens, we change this. So, you know, if, if, a, if another vessel gets within a certain distance of a submarine, then the submarine has to change course, period, no questions, no ask. It, it's an interesting question whether there should be a tripwire for teams because it does also take the emotion out of the situation, right? If you say, you know, LASD SEB was recently on a, a barricade for 42 hours mm-hmm. before they handed it over to, to LAPD. And the discussion afterwards, well, why'd they hand it over? And the other discussion was, why'd they wait 42 hours, right? Yeah. Like, it, it, it strikes me that if you're a team commander setting a tripwire for your team, where if we get to this point, we are going to transition the problem. It, it doesn't matter what state it's in. It doesn't matter, you know... If it looks like it's coming to fruition, we're transitioning the problem. Yeah. I 
think we hit on that before. I think when we talked previously that like retribution should not be. Yeah, and, oh, I'm gonna, we're gonna no, it's gonna be our team that take this guy down. Yeah. You know, we're not in the business of retribution. But and one point that I that may even actually be the tripwire. And that yeah. might be like, hey, you guys are too invested, be, you know, because of what happened. I, I just, that might be the tripwire. Yeah, I was just in a meeting with a bunch of SWAT commanders, and this was a topic that came up. Yeah. Is you have a good relationship with your local team. One of your guys gets shot. What do you do? And it was it was split, um, you know, but um, there was there's certainly an argument. Um, and, and the argument I would make is that if if an Orlando officer is killed and Orange County kills the guy, it is easier to defend that orange county sure. even if the guy needed killing and was going to go the hard way no matter what it is easier to defend uh both from a civil liability and a a press standpoint to say no we stood our team down and handed the problem over to a different agency that was not emotionally involved yeah one thing that i also think that needs to be hit on is we had the ability we were we had the luxury i would say of having that extra apartment that mirror image to practice on and all this and it was almost we even i remember saying this to me guys this is somebody else's home don't damage the apartment <laughs> right we I, yeah, I, well, as you walk through don't breathe don't you know come on guys all right bad, bad hey we're talking about lives so if i were to do it again and we had the same setup we had the same setup for the breaching through the wall is the failure on our part was not tell the explosive breachers, hey, put the charge up. All right, you think it's going to go? Yeah, yeah. All right, now good. Set it up, ready to go. Now go over to that apartment, cut the wall on that same side apartment yeah. wall away. See what you're working See what's with. there. Yeah, investigate. Oh, well, that's going to cost money. All right, money or lives? Yeah. What are we doing? Go do it. And they would probably would have come back saying, uh, we need to... Yeah, we need to change, and it, it may not have been the same wall, but well, you know, no. that, I've, I know it's, cases where they've actually peeled the wall back, and then they go to work the target wall, and it's concrete on the inside. I mean, but it's it's a, just a matter of you have to look at those things. Um, I would never do another charge like that again, and not, I mean, and I don't believe that our breaches would not peel the wall back, but it would certainly be a conversation of, hey, let's look and see what the inside of this wall looks like to give us a better idea, you know. So another thing that I've heard teams do is, especially during the problems that are during the day, is go back and pull the original blueprints. You know, mm -hmm. call call Public Works. Uh, you know, call the City Building Department and say, sure. "What do we have? Um, are there blueprints available?" Because that does give you at least you know where there is structure in the building. Right. Um, what else? What else did this change for your teams, or or do you think should other teams should be thinking about? Well, again, I, you know, and I talked about it kind of when I was going through the, the scenario, you know, the mindset of your guys is huge, uh, especially for team leader perspective and, you know, even operators. If your, your guys aren't somehow locked on or you haven't seen them not locked on yet, and then you witness that, those are real conversations to be had. Um, like I said, that breacher hit a thousand doors, zero defects, you know, and, and he's a guy who looks like a breacher, you know, like he's that guy. Yeah. Um, but making sure that there's a real understanding of what's going to come out of this and, and what the reality is now, right? Um, I have a tendency to tell all the guys on my team, hey, there's always somebody on the other side of the door with a gun. Um, and I tell them that all the time because I want them to be ready. But of course, however many times there's not, then they stop believing me, right? Um, but that's just kind of the idea. And I think that, you know, 
that's one of the biggest things. And again, that kind of spun me into really paying attention to the operators from a mentality perspective. Like, where are they at right now? Are you really good? You tell me you're all right. You're probably not good, right? Like yeah. I say, um, you know, the other thing is we immediately went to shotgun breaching after this. Um, you know, you go to these teams and I've done, I've had luxury to visit a lot of teams who have a lot of stuff. And there's always people who are like, well, they have it. Why don't we have it? And basically what I've come up with is people have all the equipment they have because bad stuff happened there. Yeah. You, know, you look at like the LAPDs or the SEBs or things like that that have no wants for any equipment. It's because they have so much happen there, right? Um, NYPD, ESU, same way. They have yeah. it all. Um, so it's kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, if you can forecast all the things that you want, that's great. Um, but I think it's also a place where other teams' lessons learned come in hand. You know, like it's um, – one of the rules that, that I play in my day job is, is we work with so many teams that we see what's working. We see what's not working. Um, and, and we see that there are certain tools that are, are you know, they're, they're a one-trick pony. Hmm? But when you need that trick, like, you know, the, the, the shielded platform on a rook is an example of that. Where, like, I'm not going to use that every day. But when you need that, you need that. Like you really need it. And I, I think it is, I don't think we spend enough time, like you said, forecasting ways it can go wrong. It's it's an interesting kind of contrast in the culture of SWAT teams because on the one hand, um, everybody believes in Murphy, right? Like mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's an open joke, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, I, I don't care how many times you do something, uh, it's not going to work. That you know the, the rook you could have trained with that thing a thousand times. That platform was only going to release on and op at an inconvenient time, um, but it is intentionally making yourself uncomfortable, mm -hmm. intentionally testing the limits of your training. I, I had inter uh, interviewed a SEAL commander recently who said he used to make his guys run high risk CQB runs at the end of really long days. Yeah, it's like, okay, let's all pull it down. No, we're doing this one more thing right now, and you need to be really sharp. Because they never happen when you're first waking up and you just had your cup of coffee and things like that. Yeah, of course. And I think, you know, John and I have been doing this debrief, talking about this for three years at least. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's things like this where people can kind of get that information. Like, I know I've taken stuff that I've learned and heard in debriefs before and directly applied it to what I'm working with right now because it dawned on me right then. Um this is not a win. Like we don't tell this story, I think, because yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's a great yeah. scenario, right? No, it's, no, it's terrible. Um, but I think there's a lot that people can take away from it and see the, you know, John talks earlier about, you know, he calls it a ballet. And when we do the debrief, he actually put a picture of a ballet happening. And I'm like, okay, well, for all of you in the, in the class, you know, um, imagine there's marbles all over the floor of this beautiful ballet. And that's what happens to, to us when we take it. You know what I mean? So you kind of read into those real, what's the worst possible thing that can happen here? You know, and, and I think we could draw a lot from that. Other people's experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's kind of the premise of the whole show, right? Like that's, sure. that's what I'm trying to do with this thing is so many of the decisions you make, you make because you have a paradigm and you recognize, oh, this is like this other scenario and you can't have too many of those um, the ability to look at something complicated and see patterns in it um, is one of the things that, that makes great leaders great leaders. And I think it's critical that you are a student of the game and constantly 
trying to push your knowledge. Well, and, yeah, and I think that's that's huge because you know we all, as A types, you know, want to be the ones who solve all the problems. Um, I have yet to find anybody who has thought of something recently that hasn't already been thought of. You know, it's it's happened before. You know, so I think in the end of the uh, uh, of the debrief that we do, we really try to hit home. It's like no matter who you are, no matter how many resources you have, or how many training hours, or how really how good you really think you are as a team. And we're not here to say that you're not, but really take that, identify your team status by looking that, take that hard look in the mirror and let me, are we really that good? Because we had that, we thought we were that good. And then we got forced, handed a problem that sucked. And not that we didn't tackle it, but well, we got challenged. And then train realistically, train hard, train different contingencies, train transition, get your technology in order and just, man, think of a thousand ways to, suck happen to you and then train it really so to in order to move that operational needle in two degrees in the right direction so i think that's a really good place for us to stop I, no you know no because you know what kevin was a warrior i'll tell you that um he hung on man he hung on for several more years after that 2018 was this incident and he uh he finally succumbed to his injuries uh 2021 so i just like to give a shout out to to kevin we we uh there's a contingency of officers that do an outstanding job they walk his kid to uh the first day of school every year since so you know we lost one too early uh too soon but he was a great one so just like to maybe possibly end it with that absolutely yeah. And that's where we should stop. Thank you, boys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.